Welcome to the Shared Histories Podcast. My name is Teresa, and I am a graduate student in the public history program here at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today we will be discussing what the Shared Histories Project is all about, the intersection of the COVID-19 pandemic and the movement for Black lives. You will hear excerpts from interviews that my classmate Carrie and I conducted. You will hear the interviewees state their names in the order in which you will hear their interview. My name is Manuel Montaño. Uh, I am from Sanger, California. I am the branch manager at an electrical company. Okay. Uh, my name is Christopher Shane. I am 33 years old. I am from Houston, Texas for the last 20 years. Grew up in Oklahoma before then. I, my profession, I um, am the owner of an e-commerce company. Um, actually, uh, uh, and part owner of a, a popcorn company. And um, what was the, I think there was one more question. Oh, um where did you graduate where and when did oh, you yeah. graduate? yes so i graduated from the university of houston clear lake in okay see if i can get everything in order my name is colin i am 37 years old um i'm from houston texas and um, my profession is i'm a videographer um and I went to school at the University of Houston. Is that everything? Yeah. When did you graduate? I graduated in 2006. Karen Melanson. I am 58 years old. Um, I finished college at USL, now UL of Louisiana. And in, I'm a music minister. Uh, I finished in, I got a BME, which is Bachelor of Music Education. Okay, so my name is Carrie. Sullivan Leger. I am a grad student, um, U.S. history with public history minor. I, um, this is my first full year. I have one more year to go before I graduate. And um, what else? <laughs> I forgot the other part of this. But, yeah. And Carrie's son, Mac. Thank you. My name is Teresa Slovacha Carrera. Um, I am a first year graduate student. Um, but I am a public history major with a minor in European history. And I am originally from Texas, but I moved to Lafayette from Fresno, California. All of our interviewees were interviewed about how both COVID-19 and the movement for Black Lives affected their own personal lives. Both Manuel and Chris expressed how hard it was for them personally to avoid seeing their families in order to keep them safe.
hard because you know one we're we're the we're, we're a very close-knit family so when COVID hit it was we had to you know put a scare in us you know the last thing we wanted to do was you know catch COVID and then infect our parents because our my our parents are up there they're old my father-in-law's old uh, so we had to you know the beginning not see them so not visiting them was very hard yeah you can talk to them facetime them but you know but it's not the same as far as you know a physical contact is um we're the type that when we see our parents we give them a hug give my mom a hug give her kiss on the cheek and now not to do that that that, that changed a lot of things in the beginning in the beginning To, I did travel out of the country once and had to quarantine for two weeks. Uh, that was especially difficult being away from my daughters for uh, for two weeks and my wife, but especially my young babies. And um, so it's it's been a strain uh, on you know our whole family. And um, but it's it's forced me to be much more mindful about. Um, about the lack of those interactions and and just just be aware of what that means in terms of you know am i getting the kind of companionship that i need and if not what can i do to get that do i need to meet with friends on zoom or do i need to spend extra time talking to my wife or my you know my parents or, or something like that so Erin caught the virus and expressed how hard it was to be away from her family. It was five weeks of, you know, a week almost before I went to the hospital, and then 11 days in the hospital, and then 14 days of isolation here, not near them. So it ended up being like, you know, five weeks of being separated from everybody. So that was tough. Yeah, and tough on Anna Claire, that's when her stomach problems started. She'd been without, we have been very close because of the past year with her, and then when I got home, I noticed she was physically suffering from it, and so it kind of triggered her issues, her CRPS. So, and it was stressful on him, because he was having to take care of me, and work, and take care of Anna Claire, because I couldn't do any of that. So, it was quite a strain. Thin. 
It is. It is. I, I saw it. It started happening. I called my doctor. He put me on some special um, little vitamins. And um, then I saw it the next day on TV. Alyssa Milano, who used to be in show who's the boss whatever anyway she's a star celebrity she had it and she was showing people how she would just do a brush and it would just come out like handfuls it happened to her I said that's me and I didn't know I thought you know I I even called my doctor he said well try this and we'll do a um, we'll check your thyroids if it doesn't get better and then the next day after I saw that it was in the news that it is a side effect Hair. And it probably for up to about six months. So, thank goodness I have thick hair. <laughs> it's still happening. Chris, a business owner, spoke to me about the changes his business had to make in order to stay up and running. Yeah, so uh, going into the pandemic, uh, we, uh, you know, since I run the company, we had 12 employees, and it was in the first, you know, in our first few, in the U.S.'s first few weeks of kind of dealing with it, which was the latter half of March, I was still trying to determine, like, how serious the threat was uh, and what to do about uh, my employees. And once it became evident in the, you know, in the, the latter two weeks of March that this was a very, you know, serious deal and there was risk of overwhelming the hospitals. Uh, we, you know, jumped on the flatten the curve campaign uh, and we did a voluntary work from home. So all the employees had the option of working from home initially. Uh, and then uh, as time went on, a couple weeks later, we made that a mandatory work from home for anybody who didn't physically have to be there. like people that are in shipping and production. So um, at, at one point it got down to like four people uh, on site and uh, and not being one to set idly by, um, I saw the need for PPE because everybody was kind of scrambling to find masks to protect themselves and face shields and especially medical professionals when everybody was worried about you know, overwhelming the hospitals and, and frontline workers not having PPE they needed. And so, like I said, not being one to set idly by um, and risking, you know, becoming non-essential, uh, I, I uh, started 3D printing PPE and we spun up a, a business out of that that, um, that, you know, made face shields and face masks. Um, and has, you know, has continued to do so to this day. So, um, so that, that was, you know, a huge change as far as what the day-to-day -day looked like for the company. In the wake of the murder of George Floyd, the movement for Black Lives have come to the forefront of our national attention. Colin, Carrie, and Mac speak about their involvement in the movement for Black Lives. Participating in the movement doesn't necessarily mean going out onto the streets to protest. It can look like many things. 
police brutality, racial discrimination that particularly were given um, a nation spotlight. Of course, George Floyd was um, gigantic around here. Of course, it was it was big news everywhere all over the country, but um, many of his relatives um, are from here in Houston. So there was, in terms of participation, there was a march for George Floyd that involved his family. And um, it wasn't exactly protest, at least not in my mind. There were signs, of course, of protest, but um, I kind of, in my mind, saw it as a more solemn event to celebrate his life. Um, now, it probably, it depends on who you ask who was there on what they would categorize it as. But, um, you know, it was, it was kind of a, a memorial type event. So in terms of being involved in protests, that wasn't exactly my perspective. We didn't go up there with signs. We were more just observers. And, you know, I kind of felt um, for his family at the moment. And it was so close by. That's, that's what it meant to me, at least. Um, in terms of I can educate some people on it. Um, I yeah, I did not actually go out in the street and participate in the protest. But um, yeah, I was very interested that younger people than me were involved. And what I really liked about it is that it was just it wasn't just one just black people. It was multi-racist, which is encouraging. Um, I I. Uh, yeah, so, and then, you know, I had my my sister who did participate in the protest. I think she participated in two of them. Um, she have, I got a shirt from her. Uh, she got me a Black Lives Matter shirt, uh, T-shirt. Yeah, so I do have that, but I don't, I, I didn't go out. I, like I said, I am uh, I'm kind of an introvert. I don't like crowds, especially big crowds like that. I like going to the parades, which is really weird, is that I don't really like crowds, but hey, I love the Monte Crowd parade. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, no, I didn't go. And then I think this um, this uh, pandemic was probably the main reason why I didn't go participate in one. Um, I've participated in them before in California, so uh, I'm pretty familiar with them. And then in the back of my mind, the whole time I know how the black community, the black people have a higher risk um, of either contracting or dying from this virus. And so I'm mindful of that. And then uh, my, one of my kids have a precondition. So, you know, I, yeah. Let me get closer with family members due to not being able to leave the house. Um, my social life, it made me really realize who true friends are and aren't, not being able to speak to anyone. So that was daunting, really. And my health, I didn't really leave the house much, so I stayed as safe as possible, masking up any necessary precautions in order to keep myself as safe as possible from this disease. Okay. So in the... I uh, really tried to read articles on credible news sources like the Washington Post 
in order to help educate myself and better understand what Black Lives Matter stands for. And then I myself just posting on social media trying to bring others to light in order of what the problem was and that I'm also a black male, so this affects me and how I have to react due to certain situations, whether it's with a cop or a teacher, any other circumstance, really. And what do you mean about you have to act, you have to, you know, being black, you have to act a certain way? What did you just say? I'm, I'm sorry. Um, per se, if I was stopped by a police officer, I'd have to take the situation differently if I were white instead of being black. Like... I have to be as respectful as possible. I can't raise my voice. I have to do whatever to stay as calm, no matter the circumstances. So what you mean is you have to? Of course, because I don't want to be mistaken for having a gun when it's just a phone. Or I don't want to say I'm threatening or seem threatening whenever I wasn't really doing anything to be threatening, besides being black, of course. And how do you look at that? Do you think that's fair? Or do you think that's just something you have to live with? What do you think about that? Growing up in America, really, it's it's scary having to deal with that. If I were stopped by a police officer, not knowing if I'd make it home, really. Yeah. Yeah, you think you were. Try being a black parent um, that of a 16-year-old that want to drive. That is not good for my blood pressure. Okay. (laughs) Well, of course, I've talked to you about this. Why are you why? It inspired me, really, because it's about my culture. And if I can't get excited about my own culture, there's no point in me doing anything to try and help. In your black community or even... What can we do as our world changes so quickly? How can we make a change? Here is my advice. One of the things that I've carried with me, like one of my mottos, is to um, to treat people with dignity. And I think just something I, I want to make sure that people are doing that, like treating other people with dignity, because that's going to solve a lot of problems. Like if you look at another person and don't have the mindset of, I wish you weren't here, like that's just, that's just mean. Um, But like trying to see that, oh, this is this person, they have struggles, they deserve to be where they are today. They work hard to be where they are today. Mm-hmm. Then you're gonna be like seeing the benefit the not the benefits, but like the the goodness and the the worth that other people have. So to see that and it's not gonna be like an overnight solve for racism or To conclude, I want to thank everyone who participated in these interviews on behalf of the Gilbo Center for Public History, the History Department, and the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. How can we make a change? What will you do to bring that about?